Hello fans of Biblical Genetics, thank you so much for tuning in to another exciting episode. And to tell you what, I am super excited about this particular episode. I read a couple of papers in our Journal of Creation just this week, and literally, my, not literally, but my mind was blown. I had learned some things that I had never knew about. And it was a simple idea that transfer RNAs that are used to make proteins have to be heavily modified for them to function. I had no clue of what was involved. I might have known a little bit, but I did not know that dozens and dozens and dozens of proteins are required to chemically modify these things or the system doesn't work. So that is today's uh, lesson, I guess you can call it. I'm going to go through all the steps that are required to manufacture a single protein. And honestly, I'm still amazed at this whole process. It is so complicated. It is so amazingly detailed. It is so exquisitely designed and is so fragile. If any one of these parts were missing, the whole system would fail. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain how to manufacture a single protein required for the ATP synthase motor. Now I'm doing that because ATP is required for all the steps that we're going to describe. Now if you don't understand biology, forgive me. I've got to get into some details here. But the point of this is that no one understands this. No one in the world can possibly grasp every detail of what's happening. So in the end, what's occurring is that we're looking into the very mind of God. That's why biology is so hard. That's why biology is so fun to study. I hope you agree. Now, all the woes of the, of the podcasting world come back at me once again. I'm not sure exactly what happened yesterday. Now, I was taking advantage of the fact that I had to spend the entire day on a Saturday in the office. I was doing an online conference in North Carolina, uh, conferencing here online from Georgia, but I, I didn't want to use my house as a backdrop and I couldn't be outside if it was noisy and there's nothing really nice on the inside. So I came to the office where I had all my fossils and all my cool pictures on the wall, my diplomas and things like that. But that means that I was doing an indoor shoot, which I had never done before. So I picked up some very inexpensive LED lights and I attempted to do an indoor thing and eh, it came out okay, I guess. I'm kind of worried about the acoustics in this room, but it's the best I can do and I'm learning so much. And yet, as typical for me, I made some errors in my recording and I said, I can record a video in between one of my breaks. And so I did, and it didn't come out so good. So I did it again during a different break and that came out wonderful. But when I got home and I looked at my camera, I don't think I hit record for the second one. I recorded on audio, so I got a nice audio recording, which I can share with you, but the video totally failed. It's like, oh man. So knowing that church doesn't start till 11, I got up at six this morning. I went back to the office. I set everything up again. It takes about half an hour to get everything set up. And I recorded again. And now I'm running a little late. I got to get home. I got to wrap up this presentation. I've already got a nice order recording for you, so I can edit that later and put it together. But I got to get out of here because I got to go to church. Either way, this is a lot of fun. I am totally not stressed here. It's strange because again, I had to redo an entire production, but that's okay because I got practice. I like the way the second one came out. The third one came out pretty good video wise, audio wise, it came out great. But you know, I am just having the time of my life producing fun audio recordings for you. I hope you enjoy this also. I'm looking at my statistics online. I'm seeing my engagement go up and up every month. So thank you. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you even more for sharing this with other people. I would love this audience to grow. I don't want to spend a bunch of money in advertising. I'm not even sure how people get a big audience in podcasting. So my strategy here is just to consistently continue to produce audio podcasts so that there's something there for people to find. I hope you found something you enjoy and I'm looking at the numbers. A lot of you must be enjoying this because my numbers are going up. But if you could do me a giant favor and tell somebody else about this. Somebody else you know must be interested in biology, in creation, in genetics. Someone out there. Tell them, hey, this is great. You need to listen to this. That would be the biggest favor you could ever do for me. If you would like to financially support this show, again, I'm using buymeacoffee.com. There's a link in the show notes. Or just go to buymeacoffee.com. Look for biblical genetics. It'll come right up. A lot of people are doing that, but I just started a Patreon account. So if you would like to do a monthly donation, typical Patreon thing, a lot of other podcasters use Patreon to generate support, that is there for you if you would like. And I have three different tiers. Each tier has a a different set of perks associated with it. And I'm going to try to produce some merchandise. Now, if any of you know a good graphic artist who wouldn't mind drawing me a, a biblical genetics logo. Until that happens, I'm going to continue to use the old black and white one that I made. I kind of like black and white because it's so different than everybody else. Nobody uses black and white. Therefore, by going old school like that, I'm actually different, strangely. But because I'm not a graphic artist, that's the best I could do. I'm looking for some cool little catchy sort of thing. And one day I'm going to have this awesome logo and I'm going to have a mug on my desk with my logo. And maybe you could have a mug on your desk with that logo also, but that would have to come through Patreon. Anyway, I'm rambling because I'm excited about what I'm about to share with you. This is mind-blowingly complicated. And it takes Michael Behe's irreducible design complex and explodes it into a million different directions. In fact, you'll hear a phrase I use. I call it the spaghettification of intelligent design because the tendrils of detail go out in all these directions and they all wrap together. And if any one of those tendrils breaks, the cell cannot live. That, my friends, is one of the most profound thoughts a biologist can think. Our lives are dependent upon our unbelievably complicated creator, God. He could have made us simple. He did not. He could have made life easy to understand. He did not. And this just brings glory to our creator. Even though I've been studying biology my entire professional life, there's still a lot I don't know. And every once in a while, I'm reminded of my ignorance. I just read a couple of papers in our Journal of Creation by Royal Truman. He's describing a subset of the genetic process. He's just describing how the transfer RNAs that are used during protein manufacturing are modified before they're used. And I was floored. I had no idea. I had never seen this before. I didn't know this stuff existed. And all of a sudden I had a eureka moment. And I said, oh, I've got to share this with my audience. Let me share with you 
the process of manufacturing a protein. The simple process, as simple as I can make it, given everything that's known. Now I'm going to skip over a lot of rabbit trails and very interesting side avenues that you can explore if you want, but if you do, you might end up taking your entire life doing nothing but studying biochemistry. This is fun, it's amazing, and the more we learn about God's creation, the more encouraged I am that He is a great God. So in high school biology, all of us are introduced to the concept that a section of DNA called a gene is transcribed into RNA or messenger RNA, and that is then translated into protein. So let's go through the steps of manufacturing a simple protein. I've chosen to use as an example one of the proteins that goes into the ATP synthase motor. What's ATP synthase? It's the world's smallest electric motor. It uses protons or hydrogen ions flowing through a membrane to turn the motor, which is then used, the force of the turning is used to bond a phosphate to an adenosine diphosphate, making adenosine triphosphate or ATP. This is called the powerhouse of the cell. It basically powers I mean, nearly every single cellular process. You manufacture your own weight of ATP every day. Now it's burned up every day also, so it's used and then it's burned. It's used and it's burned. Therefore, ATP is possibly the most important molecule in your body. And yet as soon as we start looking into this, we run into a check, a big one. Because ATP is required to manufacture the ATP synthase motor. ATP is required in the transcription step and the translation step. So we have a chicken and egg problem. What came first, the ATP or the ATP synthase motor? ATP or the cell's ability to use ATP in multiple different ways. This is a very bad problem for the evolutionary origin of life scenarios. This is a wonderful thing if we consider that God created life but it's almost an intractable problem for the other side. But before we can even begin to describe how to manufacture a protein, we need DNA. We need a way to faithfully copy DNA from one generation to the next, or life is impossible. And when we look at DNA synthesis, we realize that between prokaryotes as bacteria and eukaryotes as everything more complicated than bacteria, there's no commonality between the DNA synthesis systems. They're radically different as if they don't have a common ancestor. They do things completely different with different proteins and different mechanisms. But let's just look at the eukaryotic DNA synthesis apparatus. In a simplified view, there's a lot more proteins involved than what I'm about to describe, but at a minimum, you need a topoisomerase enzyme. This is a protein that keeps the DNA in front of the area being copied unwound. You need a helicase. This is a protein that uses ATP to open up the DNA strands. You need single-stranded binding proteins. They temporarily hold open the strands so they don't go back together again. You need two different DNA polymerases. These are proteins that zip down the opened up DNA strands and make a copy of each strand. One goes in a forward direction following the opening fork from the helicase. The other one goes in the reverse direction and works in fits and starts. Therefore, it makes separate little pieces of DNA that have to be joined together with another protein called DNA ligase. But the polymerases need to grab onto the DNA. They need a guide. They actually use an RNA guide. Another molecule called RNA primase adds an RNA tag to the single DNA strand. The polymerase finds that, starts there, and starts zipping down the strand to make a copy of the DNA. Later on, another protein comes, removes the RNA, replaces it with DNA, and then DNA ligase can join it together. That's really complicated. I mean, that is some really high-tech stuff and a lot 
of research has gone into figuring this out. We're talking about Nobel Prizes, PhD dissertations, billions of dollars of money have been spent trying to figure out how that one system works. But notice all those proteins that are required for the system to work have to be coded in DNA itself. They have to be transcribed, they have to be translated, and all of that requires a lot of ATP. There's another ATP using step here that most people miss, and that is that the A, C, G, and T, the letters in the DNA, the adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thiamine, they come from ATP. You see, there's not like loose A, C's, G's, and T's floating around in the cell. The cell will grab an ATP, rip off two of the phosphates, and use adenosine monophosphate as the A in the DNA. Well, the G is manufactured through ATP. ATP manufactures GTP. GTP is the source of the G in DNA. Likewise, CTP and TTP. These nucleotide triphosphates are energy intensive. They require a lot of energy to manufacture. That energy comes from ATP. You can't even have DNA without ATP. All right, now that we have a way to faithfully copy DNA from one generation to the next, we have to take a section of DNA only and take that and turn it into RNA. Now, RNA and DNA are very similar molecules. They're nucleotides that are strung together. DNA uses A, C, G, and T. RNA uses A, C, G. And instead of thiamine, it uses a nucleotide called uracil. DNA tends to form a double helix, the famous double helix shape. RNA can form double, triple, whatever helix is, but RNA is usually in a single strand. A nucleotide is composed of a phosphate, a sugar, and a base. Now the base is the A, T, G, C, or U. The phosphate's always the same, but the sugar differs between RNA and DNA. They each use a five carbon sugar. DNA uses deoxyribose, hence deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. RNA uses ribose, hence ribonucleic acid, or RNA. So the difference is one has a T, one has a U, one has a deoxyribose, one has ribose. Okay, another side trail for you to explore at your leisure if you really want to get into biochemistry. The transcription process starts with a transcription factor, which is a protein manufactured, of course, through transcription and translation, which is ATP dependent. Transcription factors are proteins that float around in the cell and they grab onto the DNA at specific locations upstream of a gene that needs to be transcribed. They tell the polymerase, hey, there's a gene here. Start here. And the polymerase grabs on and starts zipping down the DNA strand and will make a copy of one strand of the double-stranded DNA only and go from DNA to RNA. But not only are the transcription factors proteins, therefore they have to be transcribed and translated, which requires ATP. The whole process of doing this requires ATP. Again, the A's in RNA come from ATP. So do the C's, the G's, and the U's. You need a lot of ATP to manufacture RNA. We haven't even gotten to the point where we can start building our ATP synthase motor and already we're burning a lot of ATP. Now in bacteria, there's a very straightforward relationship between a section of DNA and a protein. Even back before we realized what DNA was in the 1940s, Beetle and Tatum came up with an idea called the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis. We didn't know that genes were DNA, but they knew that there were things that were being passed on from one generation to the next that they called genes. And 
we knew there were enzymes. So they said, oh, well, if there's a difference in enzymes between organisms, that means that there's a thing that must make an enzyme. Cool. And that worked really well when we started sequencing bacterial DNA. But all higher organisms aren't like that. Your DNA is not like that at all. If you recall an earlier episode of Biblical Genetics where I talked about the splicing and dicing system in the human genome, this is what I'm referring to. You have spacers in your genes. They're called introns. After the RNA is manufactured, the introns have to be cut out and removed, and then the exons, the part that code for protein, have to be joined together. Guess what? That requires a lot of ATP. It's crazy how much ATP goes into the production of ATP. Hmm. So now that we have a way to faithfully replicate DNA from one generation to the next, and we have a way to take the DNA and turn it into RNA, and a way to splice and dice that RNA to make messenger RNA, we can finally get to the part where we make the protein. But there's a lot more details that we still have to cover. First of all, we need a molecule called ATP-dependent RNA helicase. It's a protein, which of course has to be transcribed and translated, which requires a lot of ATP that zips along the RNA to keep it from getting all kinked up because RNA is a really fragile and really sticky molecule. It needs help so it doesn't self-destruct. Behind that is going to follow something called a ribosome. Now ribosomes are amazing machines. They are very complex combinations of RNAs and proteins. Well, RNAs have to be transcribed. Proteins have to be transcribed and translated. This requires a lot of ATP. The ribosome is in charge of matching up these things called transfer RNAs. These are, again, are complicated things that come through the process of transcription that requires ATP. At the bottom of the transfer RNA are three letters that are lined up to three letters in the messenger RNA. The messenger RNA has something we call codons. The transfer RNA has something we call an anticodon. At the top of the transfer RNA is an amino acid, and as we all know, amino acids are the basic components of proteins. Oh, here comes our protein, finally! The amino acids stringing together will make our protein. However, the hydrogen bonds that form between the codon and anticodon are not nearly strong enough to hold these giant molecules together. Oh no, a lot of work has to be done to get this system to function. And here's where the interesting part comes in. tRNA has to be heavily processed in order to work. Heavily processed. Your average tRNA may have 13 different chemical modifications, but if you modify one of the bases in an RNA, it becomes a different base. So maybe adenosine is modified to make inosine. What's inosine? It's a different nucleotide. There's tons of different nucleotides used in transfer RNAs, but all those modifications require proteins that are designed to do a specific modification. Those proteins have to be coded in DNA. They have to be transcribed. They have to be translated. And they often have to be chemically modified after the fact by other proteins. How on earth are we going to get our ATP synthase motor working here? We're not even anywhere close. We're burning up tons and tons of ATP. Yeah. But not only that, after the transfer RNA is transcribed, a protein comes and cuts off the beginning part of it. And then another protein comes and adds a CC to the other end. And then another, another protein comes and adds an A to the end. And if you're a histidine amino acid, you need an extra G through another protein to add to the end. All these proteins are very energy intensive. Transcription, translation, burning more ATP. Let me read you a quote from Royal Truman's article. Nucleotide modifications include base or sugar methylations, base deaminations, base isomerizations, and exotic moiety additions to bases. 
What? Exotic moiety? Yeah. Let me translate that. Strange and unusual things are added to the transfer RNA or they won't work. The cell has to take advantage of every single physical, chemical, and geometric trick to get these things to operate efficiently and effectively and accurately. We're talking about scores of proteins, tons and tons and tons of chemical modifications, modifications that make any biochemist drool with envy because they can't do things like this. But here we have a protein, which is a very complicated thing, designed to make one chemical change to one specific molecule. It's like using you know, submolecular scissors to do something that we cannot physically do in a laboratory. And yet biology does these things all the time. And this is where the magic, the amazement, the absolute make your jaw hit the floor sort of science comes in. The system is not just intelligently designed, it's hyper intelligently designed. It's not just like Michael Behe's mousetrap, his irreducibly complex system. This is a, let's call it a spaghettified mousetrap. It's a spaghettification of complexity and intelligent design. It's not just like this part and this part have to work together or the cell can't live. It's like 10,000 parts all have to work together or the cell can't survive. My friends, this sort of thing is not going to evolve by itself. You're not going to get a hyper complex, super interleaved, mutually dependent system of thousands of parts from a chemical soup. And it's not just we have a chicken and egg scenario, we have a spaghettified chicken and egg scenario where you have all these chickens and all these eggs and all these things have to be perfectly working or your system crashes and burns. And that is the mystery of life. God could have made life really simple. He really could have. But I think he made it complicated, not only to glorify himself, but also to thwart ideas that don't require God as an explanation. Life does not work all by itself. Life had to be created, delicately balanced, and then let go. And life has persisted now for thousands of years. That's amazing in itself. Oh, but we're not done. You see, we haven't gotten our protein yet. We still have to fold the protein. That's also going to require ATP. Now, the protein that I worked with in graduate schools was the green fluorescent protein family of molecules from corals and jellyfish, cnidarians is the fancy word. That protein is amazing because it spontaneously folds into a barrel shape. And then it's a chemical reaction that happens all by itself inside the barrel that produces something called a fluorophore. So we have a chemical reaction that happens to the protein and a spontaneous protein folding that meant that I could take it out of coral and put it in bacteria. Bacteria wouldn't have had accessory enzymes the coral might have needed, and yet it still worked in the bacteria. Ah, oh, that's amazing. But most proteins can't do that. Uh-uh. Most proteins require help folding. If left to themselves, they'll just make a, a random ball of, of nonsense. They actually need to be folded on purpose in a directed manner. And so a lot of proteins, after they, they're manufactured, after they come out of the ribosome, they are attacked by these things called chaperones. Now, chaperones are proteins that require ATP to be transcribed and translated. They grab onto the protein strand and they refuse to let go as they bring it to another molecule called a chaperonin. 
A chaperonin is a very complex, very large protein, more transcription, more translation, more ATP usage, that takes the unfold the strand in one side and does some magic. We're not even sure what happens inside this thing, but we know it goes in one end, the protein is folded. If it folds incorrectly, it's chopped up and recycled, which requires ATP. And out the other end pops a three-dimensional, fully folded, ready-to-go-to-work protein. But we have to understand there's no chemical relationship between the ACs, Gs, and Ts in the DNA and the function of the protein. There's an incredibly abstract level of difference between these things. They're two totally different languages. Yes, and I mean languages. The DNA strand is a four-letter linear language. The protein is a 20 or more letter, three-dimensional language that operates in four dimensions because it moves through time and changes shape and things like that. This is crazy. The information content of the cell is yet another giant Achilles heels for evolutionary theory. But again, that's another rabbit trail for you to follow if you're interested. In fact, you might want to look at our chapter in Evolution's Achilles heels on the origin of life. But we're not talking about the origin of life. We're talking about how to make a protein. All right, so now we have our protein. Are we ready to go? Can we finally make our ATP synthase motor? No, because most proteins are chemically modified after they're manufactured. Phosphorylation or the sticking on of a phosphate molecule is very common. Glycosylation or the adding of sugars to proteins is common. Lipidation or the adding of fats is also common. Disulfide bridges can form within a protein or between two proteins. You see, cysteine residues have sulfur and the cell can link two different cysteines together, creating a covalent bond inside a protein. For example, the blood sugar regulating hormone insulin is a highly modified little thing. Two different disulfide bridges form within the molecule. And then another protein called carboxypeptidase E, which of course has to go through transcription and translation, which burns a lot of ATP. Carboxypeptidase E comes and makes two different cuts in the insulin molecule, takes that piece and throws it away. And the final thing is very complicated, and that's a simple protein. Most proteins are modified in some way, which means there are other proteins designed to modify these proteins. This system that we just described requires hundreds of proteins. It requires many, many, many ATP molecules. In order to get this ATP synthase system working, we need a very complex, a very systematically and deliberately designed system to produce the ATP synthase motor. So once all those things are finally in place, we can manufacture our protein. We have a way to copy DNA, a way to transcribe DNA, a way to splice and dice the DNA, a way to translate the DNA using a very complex system, and a way to modify the protein after it's finished. That protein can now become a part of the engine that we've been desiring this whole time. And honestly, the description I gave you is only skimming the surface. There are thousands of proteins that have to be involved in this process. Thousands of things that have to be exquisitely tailored to do a specific job. And if you change any one of these things, more than likely, you're going to die. You're going to kill the cell. The thing is not going to work. You're not going to be able to produce your ATP synthase motor. Therefore, you have no life. And I'm going to leave you with a diagram of everything that I just described. 
the DNA synthesis, the transcription, the translation, the protein folding, the chemical modifications, just so that you can see how all these things work together. I'll also include this on a link in the show notes. The main diagram is amazing. I'm also including here some graphics from a paper by Machinka et al. 2013. Now, this is an open access paper. Anyone can read it. And I'm going to describe this so I can consider this fair use to be able to use this in my video. I would encourage you to go look this up. There'll be a link in the show notes. It is nothing short of amazing to see the details here. And all they're doing is they're pointing out all the different places on the nucleotides in the transfer RNA that are modified all the different types of modifications. And this is seven years ago. I am certain that the number of possible modifications has gone way up since then. So looking at the purines and the pyrimidines, which are the two types of nucleotides used in RNA and DNA, we can see dozens of chemical changes. And each time we change it chemically, we change a nucleotide into a different nucleotide. All of this is controlled, as I said earlier, by scores of proteins all of which have to be functional, or you can't get your ATP synthase motor. And if you look at all the ways ATP is used in this process, you realize that this whole system has to be created and has to work from the get-go, or life is impossible. Thank you for watching all of this. I know that was hard to understand. If you don't understand it, you're not alone. Nobody understands this. We are looking at the mind of God. No wonder why it's complicated. So instead of saying, oh, this is so hard, I'll never understand it. That's the point. We will never understand it. And that's what makes it amazing and fun to look into. So we don't have to remember all these names. We don't have to remember all the processes. We just have to leave with an impression that biology is incredibly complicated. Before I go, I just want to thank all my supporters. You are generous and you are wonderful. I really appreciate you talking this up on social media, sharing the podcast, sharing the YouTube videos. And thank you also for your financial support. You've made this first time ever attempt at an indoor uh, shoot possible because I'm using two, three, four brand new lights that I purchased with your donations. You people are wonderful. Thank you for the encouragement. I hope I'm encouraging you in return.